On April 5, 1984, a 14-year-old girl named Tina Fales was walking home from school, which she had done many times before. She was initially planning on walking home with a friend named Julie, but Julie's mom would not let her walk home with Tina that day, claiming that she had a feeling that something bad was going to happen. The feeling that Julie's mom had that morning was confirmed when later that day, as Tina was walking home, she was attacked and brutally murdered. Her death sent shockwaves through the small town. It would take many years, a small amount of DNA, and an eventual confession to close the case. This is the murder of Tina Fales. I'm Ashton, and welcome to The Haunted Corner. Welcome back to The Haunted Corner. I am glad that you're here. It's Monday, which means that I have a true crime case to tell you all. This week we'll be discussing the murder of Tina Fales. I hadn't heard of this case before, but when I did hear about it, I knew that I had to share it. It's it's an older one, but um, it's definitely a story that I want to share. Justice is eventually served, but it doesn't change what happened to Tina. So let's get into it. Tina Fales was born on April 27, 1969, to parents Shirley Griffith and Ron Penix. The marriage between the parents was not always a happy one. Ron was an alcoholic, and after just one year, Shirley took Tina and left to head back to California. Once there, Shirley reconnected with a high school crush named Steve Fales, They took Tina to the San Francisco Zoo on their first date, and they eventually moved in together. In the fall of 1971, Shirley and Tina were crossing the street to catch a bus when an oncoming car struck them both. Shirley had only minor injuries. However, Tina was severely injured to the point where she needed surgery and to be in a full body cast for a while. And during that time, her mom took care of her until she made a full recovery. But that poor baby, she was just, she was so tiny at that time. She had to have been around two if it was in 1971. Poor baby. But Shirley and Steve were married in 1973 with four-year-old Tina in attendance. And Steve adopted Tina shortly after he and Shirley got married. And in 1975, they welcomed their son, Drew, who was six years younger than Tina. They moved into a new house in 1976, and they loved their new neighborhood. Tina and Drew were typical kids. They played soccer and rode bikes around the neighborhood with their new friends. They were just typical kids growing up in a small town. Things were going well for a while. Until in 1982, Shirley and Steve separated after Shirley suspected that he was cheating on her and she was proven correct. And not only was he cheating on her, he was having an affair with Shirley's younger brother's wife. So Shirley told the family her suspicions and Steve moved out of the house and he moved in with the woman he was having an affair with. So the sister-in-law. What a loser. 
So here, Shirley was having to raise the kids alone again, and it was really tough for her. And Tina's brother, Drew, claims that Tina took on a lot of the responsibilities when it came to taking care of him. Their mom, Shirley, worked at a at a 7-Eleven as a manager, and she was doing her best. But Steve fought for custody, and eventually it was ruled that he would get both kids every other weekend and two weeks in the summer. Now, Tina was described by her friends as being sweet and shy. One of her friends named Stacy Coleman described Tina as being hysterically funny. She claimed that Tina was able to make her laugh until she peed her pants. Tina had another friend named Katie, and they were inseparable. They played kickball outside. They made prank calls, stayed up all night laughing. Just typical young girl things. Tina loved riding her bike, and one time... Her dad said that she rode her bike all the way to his house, which was over 15 miles. And she wasn't into drinking or drugs like the other kids her age. She wasn't super popular or outgoing, but she was known for playing pranks on other people. And this is part of what made her so funny to other people. It was also something that led to some people not really caring for Tina. So much so that some of the kids would throw rocks at Tina at the bus stop. They would tease her and call her ugly and gay. They threatened to beat her up and called her Tina the Tuna. Just typical jerky high school things, you know. In early 1984, Tina had stopped taking the bus altogether because of the bullying that she was experiencing. Sometimes her mom would pick her up from school and other times she would walk home taking a shortcut under the freeway known as the creek. This was an 8 to 10 foot high um, tube that went under the freeway and it was big enough to walk through. It was said to be really dark and creepy and the only light in the tube was at the other end. Now Steve, Tina's father, wasn't thrilled about her taking this shortcut. He tried to convince her to take the bus again, but she was not having it. She told him that it was no big deal because a lot of the kids took the same route home, and so she'd be fine. Now, Tina still wasn't taking the bus, and as a result, she was sometimes late to class. She didn't really mind because this allowed her time to avoid the bullies before school, but the tardiness would land Tina in detention at times, so it was kind of a (laughs) catch-22. April 5th, 1984 was another typical day for her. Tina and her brother argued about who would ride in the front seat of the car on the way to school. Drew, her younger brother, jumped in the front seat, even though it was supposed to be Tina's turn to ride in the front that day. And they kind of argued back and forth. And this argument would be the last time that Drew spoke to his sister. Now, this argument was the least of Tina's worries at the time. She was really struggling, and she dreaded going to school each day. Her mom asked her if she wanted wanted to switch schools, and she said she would wait until the end of the year before transferring. Tina's friend Julie had told her mom that she would be staying after school to make up a test and would be walking home with Tina, who was supposed to be staying after school for detention that day. But Julie's mother refused to allow her daughter to stay after school that day because she just had a bad feeling that something was going to happen. During lunch that day, the same girls who had been bullying Tina were again giving her a hard time and threatening to beat her up. 
Tina's friend Becky remembers Tina being late to class that day, which was really out of character for her. Class ended at 2.20 p.m., and detention was supposed to be from 2.30 to 3.15 p.m. But Tina didn't show up, and it's thought that this is because some of those girls who were bullying her were also set to be in, in detention that day as well. Tina didn't immediately leave for school that day, or leave the school that day to go home. She waited between 20 and 30 minutes before she started walking home. Another student at Foothill High School was having a rough day as well, but we don't have as much sympathy for him. His name was Steven Carlson. He was born in 1987, and growing up, he suffered from ADHD, according to his sister, Tanya, but that diagnosis wasn't really recognized back then, and he really struggled. He got in trouble, and he didn't have very good social skills or coordination he wasn't able to participate in sports because of this. He wasn't very good, and he struggled to make friends. People who knew him mentioned that he was just a strange guy, and he would say really odd things, which led to him being given the nickname of Creepy Carlson. Now, it's said that one time he entered a neighbor's house and ran upstairs to the bathroom where he ripped open the shower curtain on a young girl, and he thought it was hysterically funny and then he just left. There was another time that he was chasing a girl around a pool while naked. Ugh, he was just kind of a weird guy. On April 5th, 1984, one of the sophomore boys named Rob Tremblay brought alcohol to school and several of the students got drunk, including Stephen Carlson. Now Stephen had been throwing parties during the day while his parents were out of town so being drunk was the norm. He was acting belligerent and being inappropriate to some of the girls. And this led to some of the boys in the auto shop to lock Steven in the dumpster. He was screaming, yelling for someone to let him out. And the kids just kept walking by and kicking the dumpster. Eventually, the woodshop teacher, Gary Hicklin, heard the commotion and came to unlock the dumpster. He could tell that Stephen was wasted, and he told him to go to the office, but Stephen had different plans. He left campus at that time, and he went home. A few of his friends went to his house to check on him, knowing that his parents were out of town, and they found him drinking vodka straight out of the, bo out of the bottle. He then took a joyride around the block in his mother's car, and he didn't have a license at the time, but he wasn't making good choices as it was. So this is a 16-year-old kid who's wasted at school, driving drunk in the middle of the day. He's not doing great, and it doesn't seem like there's anyone to really keep an eye on him. I mean, his parents were out of town, but it didn't seem like there was anyone else making sure that he wasn't getting drunk at school in the middle of the day. When Tina eventually left the school that day, a kid named Dean Studemaker was shortly behind her. They weren't walking together or even interacting except for when Dean said bye to her as they went their separate ways. According to the book Murder in Pleasanton, this is the path that Tina took. She walked by the baseball fields and through the football field. She then ducked through a cutout and a fence that led to Astor Court. She then turned right onto Muirwood Drive and then left onto 
Lemonwood Way. She then headed towards the drainage ditch that led to the shortcut that went under Interstate 680, which led to her house. Another freshman, Sean West, was a few minutes behind her, but lost sight of her when he got a ride from his friend. Two other students were the next to see Tina, and their names were Weldon Mann and Todd Smith. They saw her as they were riding Todd's moped, and they saw Tina walking. They did think it was a little strange, and then they noticed that Steve, Stephen Carlson was out in his front yard around that same time. And this was around 3 o'clock p.m. Now, shortly after this, a truck driver named Larry Laval was driving down I-680, heading to his work's headquarters after a long day, when he noticed something unusual as he looked out the window. He saw what looked like a person laying in a ditch just off the freeway. Since it happened so fast as he was driving, he wasn't really convinced about what he saw, but he didn't want to just brush it off. So he took the next exit on the highway so that he could turn around and circle back to the location where he saw what he thought was a body. When he got to the location, he pulled over and got out of his truck and he got just close enough to see that it was indeed a body and it was covered in blood. And obviously this person needed help. So he quickly got back into his truck and he went to find a payphone to call for help. Kurt Stoner was the first student to come across the body. He was walking home from school after detention when he saw the body and he sprinted home. He was so shook up that his brother had to call 911 and report what his, what his brother had seen. A few minutes later, two sophomores were the next to come upon the scene. They saw papers and books all over the ground, as well as a lot of blood. One of the boys felt for a pulse, but he couldn't feel one. The body was still warm, but he knew that the girl was already dead at that time. The boys ran to get help, and the first house they knocked at was the Carlson house, but no one answered. They saw an adult at another house who quickly who was quickly identified as Michael Tuvey. The boys ran over to him and told him what they had seen, and he called 911. Now this call, as well as the call from Kurt Stoner's brother, both came in at around 3.27 p.m. And at that time, the truck driver was flagging down an officer to report what he saw. This officer was Grace Daryl Dickinson, and this is her fourth year on the job. Larry told her what he had seen, and she quickly radioed it in. So we have several people coming across the body at around the same time and trying to call it in. They didn't have cell phones, so it was hard for everybody to communicate with each other. But um, So Detective Craig Veteran was just a few blocks away when he heard the call over the radio, and he was the first officer to arrive at the scene. He checked for a pulse and confirmed that the girl was dead. He ordered Dickinson to secure the scene to make sure no one else came upon the path. Gary Tollefson was the lead detective and he received the call about the case as he was getting ready to leave early that day to celebrate his birthday. The officers quickly identified the girl as Tina Fails. There were papers, notebooks, and a binder labeled with her name nearby her body. She was wearing a black sweater underneath a purple hoodie and purple pants. 
It appeared that Tina had been stabbed with a folding buck knife. There were some wounds that were superficial, but there appeared to be a lot of wounds to her body. They found a purse in a nearby tree, and police took pictures of the crime scene, and one officer was sent to the high school to find out information about Tina. The autopsy was performed by Dr. Thomas Rogers on April 6, 1984. During the autopsy, Dr. Rogers collected hair samples, blood samples, and vaginal swabs for evidence. Dr. Rogers counted 44 stab wounds in total, which was the cause of Tina's death. He also discovered that Tina had a bruise on her right thigh as well as scrapes to her right arm and head. The police chief, Bill Eastman, decided not to release the gory details regarding the autopsy to the public, instead saying that she was stabbed over 10 times, which is still horrible, but they didn't want to release that she was stabbed over 44 times because of how traumatic it was and how disturbed the public already was, according to the police chief. It would be decades before the true number of stab wounds was known, and Chief Eastman assigned over half of his workforce to the investigation of the murder. The questions began to rise. Who would want to hurt Tina? And why would someone do this to a 14-year-old girl who was just walking home from school, minding her own business? Tina's father, Steve, believed that the person responsible could have been one of Shirley's many roommates. He claimed that there were always people coming in and out of the house, and it was not a stable environment to raise the kids in. Suspicions quickly rose surrounding the boy, boyfriend of Shirley. His name was Keith Fitzwater, and also his friend, John Anderson. John Anderson was said to have been behaving inappropriately around Tina before her death. He had entered her room several times while intoxicated. His coworkers said he was late to work the day of the murder, and he was also seen cleaning a knife. The day of the murder, he clocked into work at 3.54 p.m., so it was unlikely that he would have had time to kill Tina between 3 and 3.15, clean himself up, and get to work by 3.54 p.m. Keith Fitzwater was also looked into, but he was later proven to have taken a bus to work at 2.30 and arrived at 2.45 when he used the phone to call one of Shirley's friends. He clocked in to work at 3.30, so he was eventually cleared. Police looked into dozens of people, including Larry Laval, the truck driver who first found Tina's body. The police recreated Larry's statement from the day to see if it was really possible for him to have found the body, reported it, and flagged down the officer when he did. And it all checked out. He was telling the the truth. Police were working with the school to get an idea of the timeline of Tina's day. Unfortunately, though, the attendance records were not the most accurate, and they were unable to confirm which classes Tina actually attended that day. And this was a learning opportunity for the school because they realized just how bad their attendance taking had been had been at the time. They were not taking attendance accurately or even at all in some classes and reading that gave me such anxiety as a parent 
It was just such a different time. Um, I mean, now, like, I get a notification if my kids are one minute late to class, but it was just such a different time. And they just didn't know. They didn't keep as good of records as they should have. So it was definitely a growing point for the school. Police interviewed students at the school, and they were eventually notified of the girls who had been threatening Tina that day. They also learned that Stephen Carlson was excused from school on the day of the murder due, due to being sick but he was seen at the school that day intoxicated and belligerent and also locked in the dumpster. Police interviewed Stephen Carlson on April 7th, 1984. They interviewed him for about 30 minutes and they didn't notice any kind of wounds on Carlson's hands or face. He left the station after the interview. He was interviewed again by detectives on April 11th And this is where he gave more of his timeline from that day. He said that after school, his friend Todd Smith came to his house and they went for a ride in Carlson's mom's car. He claims they saw Tina walking home near the football field and she gave them a weird look, probably because she knew he shouldn't be driving. He didn't have a driver's license. Um, He said he then dropped Todd Smith off before returning his mom's car home. He was then notified by some of the students that there, that quote, there is a dead dude in the field, end quote. And he said that's when he went down to the field and saw Tina's body. Now, suspicion pretty quickly went to Stephen Carlson. However, there wasn't a ton of evidence at the time, and the case went cold for a while, almost 27 years. Stephen Carlson moved in with his grandmother after the murder and he met a woman named Justine Hamilton, and the two began dating. At the time, he was an alcoholic. Surprise, surprise. And one night, he was hanging out with a group of teenagers when he allegedly tried to assault one of the girls, who was 13 at the time, and he was 22. Now, thankfully, this was reported, and Carlson was charged with lewd and lascivious acts on a child, He was sentenced to three years in the California State Prison, and he served a little less than two years. He had to register as a sex offender when he was released, and about six months after his release, Justine found out she was pregnant with their child. The two got married, but the birth of his daughter did not change him. He was doing drugs and living a pretty rough life. He eventually met a 17-year-old girl and got her pregnant as well. Now fast forward several years, the case of Tina Fale's murder is still unsolved. Police had questioned 350 people after the murder and had re-interviewed 250 people in the years since. They turned to DNA testing. They decided to re-examine evidence from the scene in hopes that there would be a DNA sample that could be tested. They first tested the sweatshirt that Tina was wearing, as well as some of the pebbles that were found nearby her body, both of which yield a low level of male DNA. The next thing they tested was Tina's purse, and what they found was four stains on the purse, and they performed a presumptive blood test on all four of those stains. They began the DNA testing in late 2010, and on November 15, 2010, they were able to get a DNA profile off of one of the samples from the purse. They were able to confirm that the profile was male. 
In December of 2010, Stephen Carlson was arrested for possession of methamphetamine and for being under the influence of alcohol and opiates. He was in violation of his probation and was required to submit his DNA sample as part of the protocol. His DNA sample was placed in CODIS, which is the Combined DNA Index System. The sample taken from Stephen Carlson that was entered into CODIS was a match to the sample that was taken from Tina's purse. So they had their guy. But it wasn't that easy. They had to get another reference sample for Carlson's DNA because the first sample couldn't be used in court. So in July of 2011, detectives went to visit Carlson in person. They spoke to him for a while, and Carlson shared a lot about his past. They eventually told him that they had a warrant for his DNA, and they were going to take a sample, and they did. And they did send it off to an FBI lab in Virginia to be tested. And the samples were a match. So on Sunday, August 7, 2011, the words that officers had been waiting to say for 27 years were said, quote, you're under arrest for the murder of Tina Fales, end quote. Stephen Carlson was arrested and he would finally be facing the justice that he had evaded for so long. On March 6, 2012, Carlson entered a plea of not guilty. In October of that year, the preliminary hearings began. Stephen Carlson and his friend were both cross-examined. The defense tried to claim that the police lost the purse for almost two years, and who knows what happened to it during that time. So it was then decided that the case would go to trial. On October 14, 2014, the trial began. The prosecution called 35 witnesses over nine days. Photos of the crime scene, including Tina's body, were shown to jurors. Jury deliberations began, and on October 30th, 2014, the jury found Stephen Carlson guilty of the murder of Tina Fales in the first degree. On January 9th, 2015, he was sentenced to 26 years to life in prison. But in 2017, his charge was changed to second-degree murder by the first District Court of Appeal in San Francisco, and 10 years were removed from his sentence. Now, Carlson eventually confessed to the murder from prison, and this is what he said, quote, I remember being full of rage at the way all my classmates were laughing at me and the damage my parents' room was in and how my dad was going to whip up on me after they found out about the party I threw. Everything happened so fast I remember going to the kitchen and grabbed a butcher knife. I walked across the street into the field at the gully. That's where at the time was Tina Fales. I don't remember the stabbing motions. I just remember standing over her bloody body holding a bloody knife. You were just minding your own business, having to walk home by yourself and have to walk through that scary drainage tunnel could have also been terrifying to a 14-year-old girl, but only to be horrifically surprised by me attacking and brutally murdering you, end quote. Carlson's next parole hearing is reportedly scheduled for 2023. And that is the murder of Tina Fales. It's just so unbelievably sad and unnecessary. 
poor Tina. She really didn't deserve anything that happened to her in her short life. And Steve Carlson sucks. He's a garbage human. And hopefully he stays right where he's at because that's where he belongs. Thanks for tuning in today. The sources for today's episode will be listed in the show notes and also on the blog post for the episode at www.thehauntedcorner.com. Check out the other episodes of The Haunted Corner available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts with new episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. For exclusive content and access to our Patreon-only Facebook group, please join us over on Patreon. The very first Patreon-exclusive episode, which is Cruise Ship Disappearances Part 1, is available now at the $1 per month level on up. If you join at the $5 per month level, you'll have access to an upcoming episode one week early, and you'll get an exclusive The Haunted Corner sticker after donating for three months, plus a lot more. Follow us on social media at The Haunted Corner on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please be sure to tell a friend. It's the best way to share the podcast. If you have a case suggestion or correction to share, please send it to thehauntedcorner at gmail.com or submit it through the website. Until next time, be kind and take care of yourselves and each other, and we'll see you next time. Bye.